Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I have to admit, I'm uh, broadcasting with a little bit of an impediment. It's been two whole days since I've had a chance to hang out with the Singing Christmas Tree Choir family, and uh, I'm suffering withdrawals. I'm glad about Facebook because there are pictures there, but miss my Christmas tree family. Anyway, we're going to, um, we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be giving away tickets to the Oregon Symphony Gospel Christmas event that's coming up the 12th, 13th, and 14th of this month. What's that, a week away, two weeks away? We're also going to talk with Dudley Delfs. Dr. Delfs is the author of The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Crown. Now, we don't have a monarchy here, but it is interesting to consider this uh, monarch who has sat on the throne longer than any other in the U.K., in England, uh, and the role that her faith plays in her role in, of leadership. So we'll talk with uh, Dr. Delfs about that. And, of course, we'll uh, talk a bit about the uh, release of the impeachment report from the House Intelligence Committee. The Judiciary Committee is going to be holding its first hearing tomorrow. And by all accounts, it's not altogether clear what direction they're going to take, at least initially. They have tomorrow planned beyond that Not altogether clear. The House GOP has also issued its report. We'll try to weigh in on all of that, among other things, to uh, bring you up to date on um, today's news. So buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee released a report today that outlines and forcefully makes their case for impeachment against President Trump, which is a foregone conclusion at this point. Lawmakers behind closed doors today or yesterday, rather, were getting their first look at the report that will outline possible charges of bribery or high crimes and misdemeanors. The constitutional standard for impeachment that isn't defined. It's sort of a political um, uh, notion, and they're going to outline how they think this, uh, the charges they're bringing against President Trump fit into that configuration. House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff told MSNBC the report would be released today, and it was. Ahead of the release of the report, House Republicans on Monday put one of their own out. They delivered a point-by-point, 123-page rebuttal to the Democrats' impeachment efforts, claiming that the evidence collected in the inquiry to date does not support the accusations leveled against the president or rise to the level of removal from office. The House Intelligence Committee is set to vote on Democrats' final report and did today before transmitting that document to the Judiciary Committee, which holds its first public hearings tomorrow. At the center of the impeachment inquiry, which began in September, is Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky, in which he asked for an investigation into Joe Biden's efforts to oust a prosecutor who had been looking into Ukrainian natural gas firm, where his son Hunter Biden served on the board of directors. That call prompted a whistleblower complaint and, in turn, the impeachment inquiry. Well, Trump landed in London this evening or Monday night local time for a series of meetings with NATO. Uh, leaders over the uh, next several days are meeting there. He accused Democrats of purposefully scheduling House Judiciary Committee hearings on Wednesday, knowing that he would be out of the country. He called Democrats impeachment efforts a disgrace and a hoax as he uh, kept tabs on impeachment developments back home. Prior to landing, I read the Republican report on the impeachment hoax. Great job, Richard A radical left has no case, the president tweeted. Um, Read the transcripts. Shouldn't even be allowed. Can we go to Supreme Court to stop? And, of course, this is um, Instagram, so everything's somewhat abbreviated. 
Well, the president has a busy schedule over two days at the uh, Leaders Conference marking NATO's 70th anniversary. It includes scheduled one-on-one meetings with French President Emmanuel Macron, which made the news today, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Danish Prime Minister Met uh, Fredriksen, and Italian Premier Giuseppe Conte, all of these meetings. Uh, he also attended uh, tea with Prince Charles and his wife, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, Queen Elizabeth II, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, hosted the president and other NATO leaders at back-to-back receptions uh, this evening. Uh, Trump is also scheduled to squeeze in a campaign fundraiser with American expatriate supporters. That's expected to raise some $3 million for his reelection effort and the Republican National Committee. Representative Mark Meadows out of North Carolina, a Republican, on Monday downplayed leaked reports that he said, or rather that said, the Justice Department's inspector general's probe into the start of the FBI's Russia investigation determined that there was enough information to justify the agency's probe into members of the Trump campaign. Meadows was asked about a report in the Washington Post that said Inspector General Horowitz's report justified the FBI actions at the time. The New York Times, citing two unnamed sources, reported that the findings are expected to contradict some of the theories that President Trump has mentioned. The former chairman of the House Freedom Caucus said that all the reports are based on speculation on information which has been leaked. The report, if true, would uh, be seen as a potential setback for the president who has insisted that the FBI's investigation was a witch hunt from the beginning and a blatant attempt by Democrats to overflow it, overthrow rather his presidency. It would be nice to have one of these reports actually come out and, you know, that's what we base our views on. But leaked, uh, leaking things has become rather popular to um, either establish a particular view or to steal the thunder of one side or the other. In other news, Virginia uh, Robert uh, Guffrey, uh, who claims she was trafficked by convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein and forced to have a relationship with Prince Andrew on three occasions nearly 20 years ago, has shared more details of her story in a shocking interview broadcast yesterday. Roberts, now 35, told BBC a Panorama in a one-hour sit-down reportedly conducted before the broadcaster's interview with Andrew that aired on the 14th of November, how she first met Epstein. I won't go into the uh, details, uh, but nonetheless, it was not um, helpful to uh, the, uh, the, the prince. In other news, William Barr reportedly doubts Inspector General's findings on Russia, the inquiry. Senator uh, Lindsey Graham says to be wary of the left media's rumors. We'll just have to wait and see. It's out next week. Why we can't wait, I don't know. Uh, The Trump administration is proposing tariffs of $2.4 billion on French goods, and the Senate has confirmed Dan Brulietta as uh, Trump's pick to replace Energy Secretary Rick Perry. The Trump campaign has banned Bloomberg News from events over troubling and wrong decisions to investigate Trump, but not his political opponents. And Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson was fired by the mayor, uh, Lori Lightfoot, a few weeks before he, his planned retirement. California GOP Representative Duncan Hunter says he's going to plead guilty to corruption charges. And the Supreme Court heard its first gun rights case in years. It might be a misfire, however. Betsy DeVos has cut some 600 staff positions at the Department of Education. And Iran is admitting to murdering protesters in cities across the country. On this day in history, 1818, Illinois is admitted as the 21st state of the Union. In 1828, Andrew Jackson is elected president of the United States by the Electoral College. 
1833, Oberlin College in Ohio, the first truly co-educational school of higher learning in the United States, begins holding classes. On this day in 1947, the Tennessee Williams play, A Streetcar Named Desire, opens on Broadway. And in 1964, police arrest some 800 students at the University of California at Berkeley, one day after the students stormed the administration building and staged a massive sit-in. On this day in 1967, a surgical team in Cape Town, South Africa, led by Dr. Christian Bernard, performs the first human heart transplant on um, a a gentleman who lived 18 days with a donor organ, which came from a 25-year-old bank clerk who had died in a traffic accident. On this day in 2008, theological conservatives, upset by liberal views of U.S. Episcopalians and Canadian Anglicans, form a rival North American province. And on this day in 2013, a federal judge rules Detroit could use bankruptcy to cut employee pensions and relieve itself of other crushing debts, handing a debt... Uh, defeat, rather, to the city's unions and retirees since shifting the case into a delicate new phase. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Dudley Delfs, author of The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Crown. Not the movie, the actual crown. We'll talk with him in our next segment. Want to take a moment and give away a pair of orchestra-level tickets to Oregon Symphony's Gospel Christmas at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. Our tickets are for the Friday night performance, December 13th, 7.30 p.m. And we'd love to give those tickets away to the second caller, caller number 2, 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Two. As I mentioned uh, yesterday, we're going to have an opportunity to talk with Gary Hemingway. He's the music director. He works with the choir, and uh, he'll tell us more about that. But that's coming up on the 13th, 14th, and 15th at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, one of the more popular concerts during this uh, Christmas season. And uh, that's coming up. It'll be here before you know it. You're not going to want to miss it. Well, the Democrat-led House Intelligence Committee released a scathing report today on the findings from its impeachment inquiry, accusing the president of misusing his office to seek foreign help in the 2020 presidential race. The report, 300 pages, twice as long as the pre-buttle from the Republicans, comes hours before the House Judiciary Committee uh, began taking up the case with its first formal impeachment hearing Wednesday morning. The report uh, is was transmitted to that committee following an evening vote, which uh, has now taken place, and would form the basis for any impeachment articles. President Trump's scheme subverted U.S. foreign policy toward Ukraine and undermined our national security in favor of two politically motivated investigations, they write, that would help his presidential reelection campaign, the report said. It said the inquiry uncovered a months-long effort by President Trump to use the powers of his office to solicit foreign interference on his behalf in the 2020 election. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham swiftly hit back in a statement slamming the nature of the Intelligence Committee's inquiry and claiming it failed to prove any wrongdoing on the president's part. At the end of the one-sided sham process, uh, Chairman Schiff and the Democrats utterly failed to produce any evidence of wrongdoing by President Trump. Grisham said this report reflects nothing more than their frustrations. Chairman uh, Schiff's report reads like the ramblings of a basement blogger straining to prove something when there is evidence of nothing, end quote. Well, the Intelligence Committee, led by Chairman Adam Schiff, 
conducted extensive interviews with witnesses, some public, more private, connected to the Trump administration's relationship with Ukraine after an anonymous whistleblower filed a complaint alleging that during the July 25th phone call, the president tried to pressure Ukrainian President Zelensky to help Rudy Giuliani investigate Democratic activities in 2016, as well as former Vice President Biden and his son. The president engaged in this course of conduct for the benefit of his own presidential reelection, the Democrats uh, report says, to harm the election prospects of political rival and to influence our nation, our nation's upcoming presidential election to his advantage. The report goes on to say, in doing so, the president placed his own personal and political interests above the national interest of the United States, sought to undermine the integrity of the U.S. presidential election process and endangered U.S. national security, end quote. Schiff also tweeted, this is not part of the report, but his private tweet, the impeachment inquiry uncovered overwhelming and uncontested evidence that President Trump abused the power of his office. Now, uncontested, of course, by every Democrat, or excuse me, every Republican. But he went on to say to solicit foreign interference in our election for his own personal political gain. Schiff's committee held closed door sessions before opening up the inquiry to public hearings, which featured testimony from witnesses, including National Security Council official Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, U.S. Ambassador to the EU Gordon Sondland, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch, the report it concluded that Trump withheld nearly $391 million in military aid from Ukraine, conditioning its delivery as well as a White House visit with Zelensky on a public announcement that Zelensky was conducting the investigation. Uh, the announcement was never made. The White House visit was made and the funding was uh, made without that condition having been met. And that's one of the chief arguments being made to counter the Democrats by the GOP. It also are, uh, accuses the president of obstruction for instructing witnesses not to comply with congressional subpoenas. Well, the report alleges that the president intimidated witnesses through statements he made about Yovanovitch, Vendman, um, the Shard Affairs for U.S. Emba- uh, Embassy in Kiev, William Taylor, and Jennifer Williams, special advisor for Europe and Russia in the office of the vice president. The president has denied wrongdoing and said he will uh, with Zelensky. Uh, his call with Zelensky rather was perfect while maintaining there was no such quid pro quo uh, tying aid to investigations. One key witness, EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland, alleged a clear quid pro quo involving a White House meeting and a potential quid pro quo involving the aid, but also acknowledged he never heard those conditions from Trump directly. Zelensky has uh, also denied there was any pressure put on him or any talk of quid pro quo between the two leaders, but he did recently criticize the decision to delay the aid. Well, the Democrats report said that Trump's phone call with Zelensky was not the only incident uh, at issue. Rather, it was a dramatic crescendo within a months-long campaign driven by the president in which senior U.S. officials, including the vice president, the secretary of state, and acting chief of staff, the secretary of energy, and others were either knowledgeable of or active participants in an effort to extract from a foreign nation the personal political benefits sought by the president. Republicans drafted a report of their own, which rejected the Democratic majority's claims. Uh, the GOP report said the evidence presented does not prove any of these Democratic allegations, and none of the Democrats' witnesses testified to having evidence of bribery, extortion, or any high crime or misdemeanor. With the Intelligence Committee report in their hands, the Judiciary Committee is next going to call constitutional law experts to testify regarding the relevant legal principles involved in impeachment, which is more of a political process than a legal one, but nonetheless, before they determine whether or not to approve articles of impeachment, which would then go to the full House for a vote. I don't think anyone doubts that that will, in fact, be the case, although there is some uh, talk that more moderate Democrats are pushing for censure 
uh, because of their political fortunes being impacted uh, in areas that Donald Trump won in the last election. Uh, articles thought to be under consideration cover accusations ranging from bribery to abuse of, bow- of power to obstruction. And if the House should vote to impeach, the Senate should um, or rather would hold a trial where a two thirds majority would be needed to convict. A Senate trial could also dig deeper into the issues Trump once sought to have investigated. Joe Biden's role ousting a Ukraine prosecutor who had been looking into the natural gas firm Burisma, where his son Hunter had a lucrative board role. So it's only going to broaden moving forward. But the expectation is that the House that holds a a strong majority will impeach the president. It will go to the Senate. That's where the trial takes place. It's overseen by the chief justice and that it um, will not result in the president being ousted. Very similar to the outcome of the Clinton uh, trial, although the process uh, differing dramatically from that process uh, some years ago. A federal appeals court today upheld a decision that allows congressional committees to subpoena financial records that pertain to the president's his children, and the Trump Organization and other entities. Well, the ruling from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals calls for the subpoenas issued to Deutsche Bank AG and Capital One Financial Corporation from the House Intelligence and Financial Services Committee to be enforced, which would allow the committees to obtain the records. The documents may not include the president's personal tax returns, as the Deutsche Bank claimed they do not have them. The Capital One subpoena does not list individuals by name, but allows for seeking records of the entity's principals, directors, officers, and shareholders. The mandate shall issue forthwith, but compliance with the three subpoenas and the procedure to be implemented on remand is stayed for seven days to afford appellants an opportunity to apply to the Supreme Court or a justice therefore, thereof rather for an extension of the stay. That's a ruling by Judge John Newman, anticipating that Trump will fight that ruling. This is the very route that other cases involving Trump's financial records have taken. Other circuit court decisions centered on subpoenas for records that do include that do include the president's tax returns were immediately challenged with the president applying for stays from the Supreme Court, which were granted as the justices determined whether or not to hear the case. Those cases involve subpoenas issued to account firm Mazars USA, ordering them to turn over Trump's tax returns. One stemmed from action from the Democratic-led House Oversight Committee and another from an investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney. Again, the Supreme Court granted temporary stays on subpoenas in both of those cases. We'll have to wait and see what happens in this one. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Dudley Delfs, author of The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Crown. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, at age 93, Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in British history, continues to capture the hearts, the minds, and the curiosity of people from all around the world. Well, in his uh, new book, The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Crown, author Dr. Dudley Delfts, finds um, an in-depth or provides an in-depth look at another side of the queen, one that's rarely talked about, and that is her faith. Though the queen's world is very guarded, he pulls back the curtain and gives readers a glimpse into her life of faith through intimate stories, uh, reflections, and testimonies from historic figures like Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, and Margaret Thatcher. His extensive research makes the faith of Queen Elizabeth a deep and impressive view of her life and her faith. Well, in the book, um, he... uh, 
helps readers uh, to quickly see how her beliefs have shaped her into the iconic monarch that, and reformer that she is today. Well, my guest is Dr. Dudley Delves. He is an award-winning novelist, poet, and biographer, drawing on past experience as both an English professor and publishing executive. He often coaches other authors when not working on work of his own. Um, he joins us today to talk about this latest um, book, the second uh, bi- biography of this type. And uh, we welcome you and uh, look forward to our conversation. Georgine, thank you so much for having me on your show today. Now, my first question is how you gain access to someone like uh, the Queen of England. Uh, we see her as someone who is uh, certainly well protected. She is uh, very staid uh, and private. How do you gain access to information that gives us insight into this woman who has lived her life of duty that reflects something that she chooses, and that is to be a woman of faith? Yes. Well, the Queen, of course, is uh, notorious for her privacy and does not grant interviews and, you know, never has. And now after over six decades, though, we have a number of speeches and her annual Christmas broadcasts and the testimonies from people who do know her or who have been involved in various uh, projects with her to draw on. And so, you know, it's interesting because... Um, we can see a pattern of consistency, even though she really doesn't have that direct, overt um, testimony of her faith that, that some people might prefer. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly her life is well choreographed. Uh, she doesn't utter a word that has not been very carefully thought through. It is, a, is precise and appropriate for the moment. How difficult was it to find um, the heart of her faith? And I should mention that this is the second book in your The Faith of series in which you uh, help to expose and explain the faith of individuals whose names and stories we might be otherwise familiar with. Well, Georgina, I love exploring faith in unexpected events and people and situations. And I have some some British and Celtic ancestry uh, on both sides of my family. And so I've always kind of been intrigued by Great Britain and the monarchy and what's it all about. And since Queen Elizabeth II is the only monarch in my lifetime and, and the mm-hmm. lifetime of, I'm guessing, most of us, um, you know, I've always been fascinated by the way that she tries to navigate the, the many ro- different roles that she plays, both as, as head of the nation, as head of the Commonwealth, but also as head of the Church of England. And just, you know, I've been curious about how that uh, tension is bound to conflict at times with her roles as an individual, as a wife, as a mother, uh, a grandmother, a sister, a daughter. So, you know, exploring the the archives, the the different biographies, the different speeches and broadcasts that she's made, um, it's it's fascinating to just see that over time, Her Majesty has become, I think, much more direct about um, sharing that she does have this personal faith, Mm -hmm. and in fact, that has been I think the the sustaining factor that's helped her endure so calmly and with such poise and grace over the many years. Yeah, I appreciate that, because I think for many of us, we see this as an official title. It's one of the duties that she is called upon uh, to carry out as a monarch. And you wonder, is there a genuine faith behind this, or is just this just a responsibility that she is required to carry out? How do you, given the fact that the Queen does not grant interviews, how do you find out about the personal faith of the Queen? Well, you know, in looking at... at history and looking at the situation, um, you know, some facts are very clear. Mm -hmm. 
for instance, you know, Elizabeth never expected to be queen. In fact, you know, I think part of the reason she takes her role and her duty so seriously as a God-given role is because, you know, her uncle, uh, David, the Prince of Wales, was the heir apparent. Yes. And then, of course, you know, abdicated to marry uh, Mrs. Simpson, the American divorcee, um, in less than a year. And that put Elizabeth's father, um, Albert, who became King George VI, that put him on the throne. And that, of course, then meant that Elizabeth, as his eldest child, uh, would be the heir presumptive and go on to become queen. And so I think extraordinary circumstances, you know, those abdications, that's a big deal. Those don't happen. And so I think uh, watching her uncle make a very personal choice to pursue this love of his life, as he put it, um, instead of embracing the duty that he was called to do, um, I think that really had a profound impact on Elizabeth and her commitment both to God and to serving as the monarch of the United Kingdom. As I mentioned, this is the second book in your series, The Faith Of. The first one was Dolly Parton and now the Queen of England. Uh, How did you choose your subject for the first and then now the second? (laughs) You know, that's a great question, Georgina. (laughs) I don't have an easy answer. I mean, people ask me, how did you go from (laughs) Dolly Parton to the Queen and, and what's that all about? And And honestly, I I don't have a great answer other than I really am inspired and fascinated by individuals who clearly have uh, fulfilled this this large calling and this, this, you know, iconic presence um, in in the world with their achievements and, and so forth, and yet have been very clear about having a Christian faith throughout the process. And so, you know, with Dolly Parton, she was very much part of my upbringing here in the southeast in Tennessee. Um, you know, she seemed to kind of hover at the edges of my life in various ways, as I, I talk about in that book. Um, and even with all the, the glitter and sequins and superstardom and all of her jokes and uh, all of all of that, you know, she has always been very, very clear about mm-hmm. having her, her faith out front. And reading her Bible, praying, um, being very, very uh, respectful, being very compassionate, you know, um, the imagination library, helping kids read or providing funds for people who lost their homes to forest fires. Um, So, you know, jumping from that kind of uh, career to looking at someone equally as famous, but in a very different setting uh, with Queen Elizabeth, it wasn't as big a jump as it might first appear. Yeah, well, they're both fascinating women, and I think their stories are certainly worthy of being told as it relates to their personal faith. Tell our uh, listeners about the story you opened the book with about uh, Queen Elizabeth that might help to humanize her a bit and help us to appreciate that this is a woman of strong faith. Yes, Georgine. I opened the book with the story of Queen Elizabeth II attending a celebration service for Scripture Union and the Bible Society um, of the UK. And these are uh, uh, two of the the many, many uh, charities and nonprofits that Her Majesty uh, serves as patron on. But she has always taken a very active um, participant's role with Scripture Union and the Bible Society and the way they provide curriculum and Bibles for children and young adults, not just in Great Britain, but around the world. So as part of her Diamond Jubilee a few years ago, 
um, she she partnered with them to create a booklet, uh, Her Majesty the Queen and the King She Serves. And there she does talk very openly about her faith, and it really is a great uh, a great tool, if you will, for opening conversations with neighbors or friends you want to, to share your faith with. So when Scripture Union celebrated their 150th anniversary, she very quietly, very discreetly, if that can be the case with the Queen, um, attended the service as a congregant. She didn't make a speech. She didn't have an official royal um, duty, but she simply wanted to be there to, to celebrate and to worship and to give thanks for the great ministry that these organizations have. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about a fascinating book, The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Throne, or rather, Behind the Crown. My guest is Dr. Dudley Delfs. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Dudley Delfs. He is the author of The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Crown. This is one of his, uh, the second in the Faith of series, and a fascinating look at this private aspect of the Queen's life. Now, one of the ways that you were able to discover the inner workings of the Queen in terms of her faith was uh, by uh, talking with and exploring the many people that are involved in her life. Can you talk about some of these key people and uh, what you learned about them? Yes, Georgine. Certainly uh, conducting research um, in the United Kingdom uh, while writing this book was immensely helpful. Uh, Certainly there's plenty of information available online, but it's, you know, great. There's no substitute for those face-to-face conversations um, with people who are either leaders or um, in the church and in, in the government um, who have interacted with the queen, who have uh, met her or uh, been involved in some uh, royal project or philanthropy. Um, the thing I appreciated most, however, I certainly valued those expert opinions and input, but they seemed a bit more guarded than just the average citizen. Uh, so just uh, chats I would have when visiting churches or riding the train or in a pub um, turned out to be just very illuminating because even people who do not consider themselves royalists or fans of the monarchy, they truly seem to still respect and love Her Majesty the Queen. They appreciate that she has proven herself um, with just a consistency and uh, you know, a steady, steady hand over these six decades now. And that that is an incredible example for them. Mm. Um, when you were putting together aspects of her faith, uh, as I mentioned, you uh, looked to luminaries like, um, uh, oh, his name has just escaped me, um, Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Margaret Thatcher. What did you learn about her faith from these individuals whose lives uh, that we uh, we think we know about? Yes, Georgine, those Again, very famous individuals um, equally respect uh, Her Majesty the Queen, even if you know they may not have always agreed on certain issues or situations. One of the most fascinating relationships, truly, has to be the one she had with the Reverend Billy Graham. Um, you know, they met in the late 1950s during his first major London crusade. And I think that coincided with a time in the Queen's life where the pressure was was building, and she was discovering, you know, more of 
the isolation and the loneliness of trying to, you know, juggle the personal and the public demands um, of her role. And so, you know, she reached out and invited uh, Billy Graham to uh, come and preach at Windsor Chapel. And he accepted. And, you know, we see conversations between them dramatized in the program The Crown on Netflix. And while we don't necessarily know what they actually talked about, um, we do know factually that they continued having a relationship um, for the rest of Billy Graham's life. Um, He is very direct in his autobiography talking about his friendship and admiration and appreciation for the Queen and the way they would correspond or meet whenever their international paths might cross. Uh, one of the fascinating aspects of your book, which is sort of an extension of what uh, what you were just talking about, is that the fact that you talked with folks in England about the Queen and her faith. Can you pick out one or two of them that uh, impacted your writing and research for the book more than perhaps others? Yes. Uh, one of them that definitely made an impression and resonated with me, Georgine, was a young man I met on the train uh, heading north, northwest out of London up toward Manchester. And um, he was a working-class young man, probably in his mid to late 20s. Um, As we ended up chatting a bit, he disclosed that uh, he was heading home to see his wife and very young children, and he was very excited because he had been away in the city um, working all week. Um, And then as he asked about my work, and we talked about the book and this project on the faith of the queen, he said, you know, I'm, I'm really not a fan. I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and, of course, the troubles there um, have made it very difficult to um, admire or to appreciate the monarchy and the tensions between uh, the various peoples and the various countries. And he said, but you know what? As I've gotten to be a dad and I'm, I'm getting older, I still appreciate the queen more than I used to. I, I respect her. You know, she she tries to do the right thing. She tries to show goodness and respect and to listen. And he said, I value that more now than ever. Mm. An interesting perspective that the Queen sort of grew on him as he has observed her faithfulness um, in serving the people, and which is an extension of her faith. Yes, example. I mean, exactly. I'm sorry. I think her example um, impressed him. And um, you know, again, as he is now entering, you know, into uh, parenthood and, and more mature adulthood, I think he realizes that sometimes these very complicated issues, um, you know, uh, have many layers and they're not quite as clear cut as, as we might see from only our limited perspective. And so uh, the queen trying to demonstrate faith and uh, being very conciliatory um, made a, a very strong impression. Why do you think there's so much fascination with the Queen of England? Certainly the fact that she's 93, she sat on the throne longer than any other monarch in England uh, has. But what do you think is most fascinating to people who are interested in her life and her inner workings? I think, Georgine, that it it really is the the tension. And, you know, there's a sense of wanting to identify with her, you know, as uh, just another person or, you know, a human to human. But... uh, then there's also that sense of uh, all that she symbolizes, all that the monarchy and being queen might represent, and you know even those associations that that might carry over from childhood, from from fairy tales and myths and Disney movies and all of all of the royalty and king and queen and princess notions that uh, that we might have. So I think there's this this you know 
tension there. We we want to know what she's really like, and you know how could it be difficult or how could it be a burden to to be in that role when she has so much wealth and luxury. You know she doesn't have to cook her own meals or clean her own bathrooms or anything like that. So what's so tough about that? But yet the demands and the responsibilities and the duty. Um, make it clear that she has made sacrifices and that she is very committed to serving and trying to serve for her subjects to the full capacity that she is able. What do you think is the secret uh, to her doing all that she does, particularly at her age, at 93? I think she does take that duty and that commitment to God very seriously, Georgine. And honestly, I think her faith is the glue that has has held things together in her life. Um, I, I think she would say it much more eloquently um, than than that. But I do believe her faith uh, sustains her. Um, you know, one of the one of the uh, average citizens I, I chatted with there um, in London was an older woman, uh, not as old as the Queen, but but up in years. And she said, "I think the secret to the Queen's success has to be her faith." I mean, you look at all the world events and all the changes, and then you look at all of the the family struggles and turmoil and relationships and scandals and tabloid headlines. And how else could one survive if one did not have a deep and abiding faith in Christ? Well, the book is about Her Majesty the Queen and the King She Serves. The title of the book, The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Crown. The book is published by Zondervan. Dr. Delves, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us this evening. Georgine, thank you so much for having me on your show. Really appreciate it. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll delve into some more of the day's news. So stay with us. You're listening to uh, The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, In the second hour, we're going to talk about an appeals court. Uh, The fact that one of the um, Democratic uh, hopefuls has dropped out of the presidential um, nominating race. Fewer Americans are donating to charity. And the fact that this is Giving Tuesday Uh, That uh, is perhaps more relevant than it might be on a Wednesday. Also, some strategic questions for the EU leaders who are uh, currently meeting in uh, the UK, and they're talking about the 70th anniversary. We'll take a look at the uh, lawsuit that Devin Nunez has filed against CNN and historians' uh, rebuke of the 1619 Project. Much, much more coming up in the second um, hour. Also, uh, in the latter part of the hour, we're going to talk about how much television the average person is watching and a decision that's been made in the Army regarding dog tags and whether or not men and women in the military who have enjoyed the freedom to have Scripture on their dog tags will be permitted to do that moving forward. Something of uh, of a controversy. We'll get into all of that in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Seven minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, California Senator Kamala Harris uh, today announced that she is withdrawing from the race for the Democratic presidential nomination after failing to capitalize on early enthusiasm for her campaign and watching her poll numbers collapse. Of course, that's been the case for quite some time. In good faith, I can uh, I can't tell you, my supporters and volunteers, that I have a path forward if I don't uh, uh, believe I do. 
Uh, Harris wrote in an email to her supporters. So to you, my supporters, it is with deep regret, but also with deep gratitude that I am suspending my campaign today. I guess suspending the campaign sounds better than just dropping it all together. And aide said uh, Harris informed staff on Tuesday that she was ending her White House bid. Kamala Harris entered the race in January as a top contender, had a breakout moment in the first debate thanks to a memorable clash with then frontrunner uh, Joe Biden over his record on desegregation busing which was very controversial at the, the time. But she's, uh, she's struggled in, to shine through the subsequent debates, has seen her poll numbers plunge in recent months. In November, for example, her dramatic uh, uh, cut of her staff in New Hampshire, the state that holds the first primaries in the race for the White House to focus on Iowa was uh, early indication. Her campaign was also hemorrhaging money, spending more than what was uh, coming in uh, with some tough media coverage about the campaign struggles. She becomes one of the, the biggest campaigns, uh, rather candidates yet to drop out of the crowded 2020 primary field two months before the uh, leadoff Iowa caucuses. But she certainly will not be the last. Her exit follows the withdrawal of former Texas uh, Representative Beto O'Rourke, another Democrat who entered the race uh, to great fanfare, but later struggled campaigning in Iowa on Tuesday. Uh, the former vice president said of Kamala Harris, I have mixed emotions about it because she is a really solid person and loaded with talent. As word spread of her dropping out on Tuesday, her husband, Douglas Imhoff, tweeted, I've got you as always. Uh, she launched her campaign in front of 20,000 people at a chilly outdoor event in January. The first woman and first uh, a black attorney general and U.S. senator in uh, California's history. She was widely viewed as a candidate poised to excite the same segment of voters that sent Barack Obama to the White House. She raised an impressive $12 million in the first three months of her campaign, quickly a lockdown major endorsements meant to show her dominance in her home state, which offered the biggest delegates hall in the Democratic primary contest. But as the field grew, her fundraising remained flat. She was unable to attract the type of attention being showered on Pete Buttigieg by traditional donors or the grassroots firepower that drove tens of millions of dollars to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Part of it was she had difficulty framing her message, and it wasn't clear she knew herself who she was, changing her position on uh, issues that seemed to reflect um, Uh, trying to impress her listeners uh, in a moment. In a lengthy deep dive into California senators' struggles on the campaign trail, the New York Times on Friday reported that many of her advisors point to a July debate moment between Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard and the senator as accelerating her decline in the polls. In that debate in Detroit, Michigan, Gabbard took aim at Harris's record as a prosecutor, saying she was deeply concerned about it. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. Uh, Harris also suffered from what allies and critics viewed as an inconsistent message. Her slogan, For the People, referenced her career as a prosecutor, a record the campaign struggled to pitch to the party's most progressive voters. And through the summer, she focused on pocketbook issues and her 3 a.m. agenda, a message that never seemed to resonate with voters. That was sort of last campaign. By the fall, she had uh, returned to her courtroom roots with the refrain that justice is on the ballot, both a cry for economic and social justice, as well as her call that she could prosecute the the case against a criminal president. But in the end, Kamala Harris has dropped out of the presidential race, narrowing the field well, ever so slightly. Well, today is Giving 
Tuesday. And there are lots of ways to uh, to give, but the tax code might make it uh, somewhat discouraging uh, among those who would otherwise give. The impulse behind the annual occasion is admirable, and lots of people respond. But there's much more we can uh, do to increase and better measure America's charitable giving. Well, the annual Giving Tuesday campaign to increase charitable giving in the spirit of the holiday season is back. Back throughout the day, that's been the case. It's never been entirely clear, however, whether the occasion increases overall charitable giving or merely shifts more of it to the first Tuesday in December. And indeed, there's reason to think that that's exactly what's happening. It's not more giving. It's just giving at a strategic moment. Uh, that might have come earlier or later in the year. The most authoritative source tracking U.S. charitable giving is the Giving USA tabulation. It's compiled by Indiana University's Lilly's Family School of Philanthropy. And they've reported that even as overall giving climbed in 2018, the most recent year tracked, individual giving declined. Specifically, giving by individuals totaled an estimated $292.9 billion, declining 1.1% in 2018, a decrease of 3.4% percent adjusted for inflation. Now, this is exactly what one would expect following the passage of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which by raising the standard deduction for federal income tax returns drastically reduced the number of taxpayers who itemized their deductions and who thus no longer qualified for the charitable tax deduction. Now, I'm convinced that not everybody gives in order to take advantage of the charitable tax deduction. But many uh, take advantage of that because it is available. Well, in other words, Giving Tuesday is trying to push back against a tide that transcends appeals to individual generosity. To actually increase charitable giving, you have to adjust the tax code. And, of course, Giving Tuesday can't do that. Well, today, the overwhelming number of Americans who make charitable donations don't receive any tax advantage for doing so. As the Tax Policy Center puts it, most low and moderate income taxpayers do not claim a deduction for charitable contributions, largely because most do not itemize. Yet they note that um, the 90 percent of households that do itemize make at least 40 percent of all charitable contributions. In other words, if in the spirit of Giving Tuesday we want to increase charitable giving, targeting that 90 percent is key. But today, the statistics show that charitable giving is increasingly a province of the affluent. The Tax Policy Center reports, for instance, that a small group of households, the 10% that itemize their tax deductions, account for fully 60% of charitable donations. There are, however, several options that would tweak the tax code to reward charitable giving by non-itemizers. For instance, the Lilly School estimates that a 25% charitable giving tax credit, a reduction in tax owed, whether one itemizes deductions or not, would increase giving by about $37 billion dollars and increase the number of donor households by 10.6 million. Well, even just extending the charitable deduction, not a dollar-for-dollar credit, to non-itemizers would, uh, says the Lilly School, generate up to $26 billion in additional donations and induce up to 7.3 million additional households to donate. So a slight tweak to the tax code could make a really big difference to charitable organizations. Now, these approaches would, of course, reduce federal tax revenue at a time when the federal budget deficit is rising, but the foregone revenue would be relatively modest. Um, it's estimated in the range of $26 billion to $33 billion for the two options that I've mentioned. And that money would go to organizations often trying approaches to social ills that the government hasn't considered or isn't well-equipped to attend. Attempt. 
Would we rather spend $33 billion across a range of community organizations accountable to their local boards or add another drop to the bucket of the federal spending? Well, it's worth noting, of course, that even as approaches to increasing charitable giving's breadth should be considered, we don't really have a firm idea of how generous Americans really are. Our estimates are of charitable giving by non-itemizers are at best and educated guests based on surveys. The small cash donations that help churches feed and clothe the hungry aren't seriously tracked, nor is the cash that goes to parent-teacher organizations through bake sales, another huge donation, the labor volunteers, and that the value of that labor is some $167 billion. While the impulse behind Giving Tuesday is admirable, but much could be done through tax policy. Now's a good time to think about it and perhaps suggest that to those who make those kinds of decisions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Republican Representative Devin Nunez is suing CNN for defamation, accusing the cable network of publishing a demonstrably false hit piece about him amid his high-profile opposition to the Trump impeachment inquiry. Well, the lawsuit is 47 pages long. It filed was filed in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. It accuses the liberal network of publishing numerous egregious false and defamatory statements about uh, the representative on the 22nd of November when journalist Vicki Ward reported claims that Nunez met with Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin in Vienna in 2018 to dig up dirt on Hunter and Joe Biden. Nunez, who's been leading GOP opposition to the House Democratic impeachment inquiry in the House Intelligence Committee, says he did not go to Vienna or anywhere else in Austria in 2018 and has never met Shokin. Well, CNN is the mother of fake news, he went on to say. It is the least trusted name. CNN is eroding the fabric of America, proselytizing, sowing distrust and disharmony. It must be held accountable, the lawsuit uh, states. Nunez is seeking at least 435000 well, actually, that's million dollars in compensatory and punitive damages. CNN has not yet responded. Um, the lawsuit mocks the trusted source of CNN story, Lev Parnas, a man recently indicted by the U.S. government and charged with multiple federal crimes. The CNN story said Parnas' attorney told him, uh, rather told them, his client was willing to tell Congress about Nunez's travels. The suit includes a tweet sent by MSNBC um, justice and security analyst Matthew Miller, who publicly questioned Parnas' credibility, which is now... Uh, been uh, called into question legally. It was obvious to everyone, including disgraceful CNN, that Parnes was a fraudster and hustler, the suit said. It was obvious that his lies were part of a thinly veiled attempt to obstruct justice and to trick either the United States Attorney or House Intelligence Committee chairman into offering immunity in return for information about Nunez. The suit also named War, the reporter who penned the piece in question, and Cuomo primetime namesake Chris Cuomo, who promoted the article. The ulterior purpose of the CNN article article is to advance the impeachment inquiry to seed doubt in the minds of Americans and to influence the outcome of the 2020 election, the lawsuit said. The suit mocks Cuomo for having recently threatened to assault a man who referred to him as Fredo, who Nunez claims also helped disseminate the false and defamatory statements at issue in his case as part of the scheme to boost CNN's ratings and further the House Democrats' impeachment inquiry. Well, CNN received approval and ratified the fake news prior to publication, the lawsuit states, prior to November 22nd. 
Uh, CNN knew that Parnes and his attorneys or other political operatives were shopping a story to the press that made claims about the plaintiff implicating him in efforts to get dirt on Joe Biden and his son. CNN knew that no other news outlet would touch the salacious story because none of the facts provided could be verified. Well, the lawsuit indicates that Nunez feels CNN's goal was to inflict maximum damage to his reputation so that he uh, would be removed from the impeachment inquiry against the president. CNN Worldwide President Jeff Zucker has a longstanding feud with the, the president, and the network is often criticized for focus solely on the impeachment, even at the expense of other important news. Well, the uh, suit has been filed. We'll follow that story as it uh, develops. Well, as I mentioned, the president is in the process of meeting with um, uh, NATO leaders, and it's the 70th birthday of the organizations, the leaders of the North American Trade Organization. Uh, in London this week to celebrate the anniversary of the alliance, it's the perfect opportunity for the president to declare a big halftime lead in his campaign to persuade other members to meet their financial obligations. We saw a little taste of that in the exchange between the president of the United States and the Canadian prime minister. Well, with regard to France, the president, uh, he's being uh, told, should take French President uh, Macron's call for a new EU army as a sign of interest in defending France, NATO members and the West from new security challenges. But a few questions could help channel his vigor into efforts against more immediate threats. For example, does France have any plan to evaluate the cyber surveillance risks posed by the Chinese undersea fiber optic cable soon moving ashore in Marseille? Ironically, named the Peace Cable, the fiber link will add a major new connection between the EU and China through interchanges serving Pakistan and another country that uh, that I cannot name. The Peace Cable involved um, Huawei Marine Networks until U.S. attention on Huawei forced it to sell its subsea subsidiary. Well, the buyer uh, is a Chinese conglomerate of more than 50 companies uh, in telecommunications, cable systems and electric power. Uh, became involved in the Peace Cable last October when it set up uh, a rather um, uh, precarious venture company for the project in cooperation with Hong Kong-based PCCW. Well, the bottom line is that the complexity is par for the course with Chinese state-owned enterprises. It shouldn't be confused Macron himself, an investment banker trained to in unraveling opaque corporate structures to get to the real decision makers. The bottom line is that a Chinese technology will soon have what French telecom operator Orange called a gateway into the EU data network through the new digital window that uh, Orange is building for the Chinese in Marseille. Indeed, Marseille has uh, become a major site of Chinese strategic expansion. The ancient port city uh, is home to a shipping and port operator that's the main partner in the ocean alliance with China's Costco shipping, and that's without the T, which now dominates global container shipping, port operations, and logistic uh, services. And the concern is uh, gaining access to private information through this system. Well, with regard to Germany, the president might also turn up the heat on Angela Merkel. Uh, Germany recently rebuffed U.S. warnings about a cyber, the cyber risks of Huawei network equipment, refusing to ban Huawei gear from its own national networks. In a move seen as targeting Chinese state-backed investors, Berlin tightened foreign investment rules last year. Now it can investigate and, if warranted, block purchases of stakes in German companies by non-European entities. Well, even so, finding common ground with Merkel will be an uphill slog. A recent survey by the Pew Research Poll 
And the uh, Korber Foundation found that 75% of Americans said the U.S.-German relationship was good or very good. Only 34% of Germans surveyed agreed. 17% of Americans saw the relationship as bad or very bad compared to 64% of Germans. Now, Merkel solicited China's uh, capital during a trip to Beijing in September, and German technology collaboration with China is growing. Earlier this year, Germany's um, Fraunhofer Institute, akin to U.S. National Research Centers such as the Argonne National Laboratory in Los Alamos, struck a deal with the Chinese university to open an advanced manufacturing technology research center in the harbor at Shanghai. And then there's Italy. The president might formally, uh, will formally meet with the uh, uh, Italian leadership for the first time with the leader of the uh, nation that is a formal supporter of China's Belt and Road program. And if they support this program, it's as it's loosely defined, it is nevertheless a pledge that Italy will give China's uh, views more than a fair hearing. With China showing an interest in curtailing America's maritime presence, it would be prudent for the president to seek the strongest possible assurances from Italy's leaders that the country fully supports the U.S. and NATO facilities and commands Um, housed in Naples, despite the marked increase in Chinese investment in uh, Italian public infrastructure, such as ports and railroads, as well as private sector assets, such as banks. Well, later this month, major new deep water docks and upgrade uh, refrigerated terminal will begin to operate in the northwestern Italian port of Vado, primarily using the ships, cranes and other equipment that China's Costco installs at the port. China routinely uh, employs gray zone techniques that meld civil security measures with operations that can have military or intelligence purposes. That's part of the U.S. concern. Their policies have conducted joint patrols with Italian police over the past several years, ostensibly to protect Chinese tourists that don't speak Italian from the um, uh, predations of restaurateurs around tourist sites. Uh, what's the nature of this collaboration? What are Italy's national leaders doing to monitor Chinese influence over Italian security personnel and systems is the question that many are suggesting the president should take advantage of the opportunity to raise uh, during this historic meeting. And as for the rest, an unexpected meeting or rather an expected meeting with the leaders of Greenland, meanwhile, presents an opportunity for the president to help the U.S. secure access to natural resources, including rare earth minerals. China's aggressive global infrastructure expansion is aimed in large part at securing mineral supplies. A billion-dollar Chinese loan to uh, Montenegro for a road to nowhere may result in China uh, and their takeover of the um, uh, Montenegrin national assets, such as its deposits of um, bauxite, a source of uh, gallium compounds essential to electronics manufacturing. Access to minerals is a top priority for China. And this week, a Chinese-backed consortium won the rights to move ahead with a major new iron ore mining project in the western African nation of Guyana. The first step is uh, construction of roads and port facilities to export the ore from Guyana. Again, China's decision to suspend the rights of U.S. naval vessels to call uh, at the ports in Hong Kong highlight the vulnerability the United States is facing to China's global commercial port uh, network that now is reaching into strategic areas in Europe that has less concern uh, than the United States suggests it ought. So some of the things the president might Uh, take advantage of to present during this historic meeting. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 31 minutes after 5 o'clock. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Trump administration intends to propose a regulation next year that would require all travelers, including U.S. citizens, to be photographed when entering or leaving the United States, according to the administration's regulatory agenda. Now, this isn't all that unusual when you're traveling abroad. Oftentimes, you are required to have a picture that goes into your passport that you leave and take with you into the country and leave when you exit. Well, this proposed regulation slated to be issued in July by the Homeland Security Department would be part of a broader system to track travelers as they enter and exit the U.S. Well, the plan has already drawn oppositions for um, for rather from privacy advocates. Um, One senior policy analyst with the American Civil Liberties Union blasted the idea in a written statement saying travelers, including U.S. citizens, should not have to submit to invasive biometric scans simply as a condition of exercising their constitutional right to travel. Well, the administration contends in its uh, regulatory agenda that the face scan requirement will combat the fraudulent use of U.S. travel documents and aid the identification of criminal and suspected terrorists. Well, the public typically has 30 to 60 days to comment on a proposed U.S. regulation. The federal agency then needs to review and respond to the comments, a process that can be time-consuming for major regulations. Well, the administration also said in its uh, regulatory agenda that it plans to issue a separate fast-track regulation this month that would allow the entry-exit project to move beyond a pilot status. U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which is part of DHS, has already conducted pilot programs that collect photographs and fingerprints from foreign travelers. These are foreign travelers. A 2018 internal audit found technical and operational problems during the pilot program at nine U.S. airports. The problems raised questions about whether DHS would meet a self-imposed deadline to confirm all foreign departures at the top 20 U.S. airports by fiscal year 2021. Well, the uh, Pew Research Center, which is nonpartisan, estimated in 20, uh, 2006, rather, that 45 percent of immigrants in the United States without legal status entered on a valid visa but did not depart when it expired. This uh, plan is designed to uh, remedy that. And again, it's expected to be proposed sometime next summer. We'll try to keep uh, an eye on that and let you know when the comment period begins. Well, in the old days, a decade or so ago, Democrats would have assailed Donald Trump's failure on federal deficits instead of eliminating it as promised. The deficit has doubled to a trillion dollars as far as the eye can see. Now, Republicans would have uh, belly ached about it as well. Republicans would be in full fury over spending schemes of Democratic presidential candidates. Even the mainstream moderates propose huge increases for health care, education and the social safety net for the disadvantaged. Yet deficits says a political issue pretty much is dead. The political impact always was exaggerated, but out of control deficits were a staple of opposition rhetoric, depending on whose ox you were goring at the time. There invariably are some budget-balancing blue-ribbon groups, the most famous being the Simpson-Bowles Commission. For Democrats, the pressing urgency of unmet needs in health care, education, infrastructure, and social safety net far outweigh any rising debt. They favor high taxes or tax hikes, mainly on the rich, to reverse the huge 2017 Republican tax cuts, but there's less premium on the green eyeshade test of paying for all the spending initiatives. Most Republicans strongly want to keep those tax cuts. The only significant achievement of three years of party rule and um, a little interest in tackling politically popular entitlements has been part of that. In the years the Republican Party controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, it's focused 
uh, was only on gutting the Affordable Care Act and not on deficits. Well, this has become the Trump Party, which overshadows the old Republican battle lines between budget balancers and tax cutters. This Republican executive is a tax cutter and a budget buster. Well, as well as the politics, Democrats have a strong policy basis for their position. Early this year, the two most prominent Democratic economists, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and Jason Furman, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, both under Barack Obama, wrote an influential article citing structural declines and in interest rates. This means that policymakers should reconsider the traditional fiscal approach that's often wrongheaded, uh, limited um, worthwhile investments in such areas as education, health care and infrastructure, they argued at the time. Politicians, they advised, and policymakers should focus on urgent social programs, not deficits. Well, they don't go as far as the modern um, monetary theorists who basically argue the sky is the limit on debt unless inflation takes off. Instead, Summers and Furman claim a key is that the federal debt as a percentage of the economy stays at a relatively stable three or four percent where it's uh, been for the uh, past five years. The Republican deficit hawks, most recently former House Speaker Paul Ryan, have been rendered obsolete at least as long as it's uh, Uh, the party of Donald Trump. Even back in the 70s, some Republicans embraced what supply-side propagandist Jude uh, Wonski called the two-Santa theory, namely, to counter Democrat support for popular spending programs, Republicans should favor huge tax cuts without concern for the deficit. Ronald Reagan once joked he didn't worry about the deficit as it was big enough to take care of itself. Also, the Republican cries about the evils of big deficits have been more rhetorical than real, although the general perception of Democrats as more fiscally uh, profligate is, um, well, you know. Under Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, the federal budget deficit doubled. The deficit was $255 billion when Bill Clinton came into office. At the end of his term, there were four straight small surpluses. This, along with the surplus at the end of Lyndon Johnson's presidency, are the only ones in the last 60 years. Well, the deficit also soared under George W. Bush, especially at the end of his term with the economic crisis. Obama inherited a massive $1.4 trillion shortfall and in eight years cut it by 60 percent. The shortfall has doubled under Trump. As a percentage of the economy, however, it has risen from 3 percent in the final Obama year to a bit more than 4 percent now. Even Washington's most stalwart and consistent fiscal hawk, Maya McGinnis, president of the Bipartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, acknowledges the budget deficit isn't a top priority concern right now as low interest rates buy us more time. However, she cautions that the fiscal situation is the worst it's been since just after World War II, adding no one knows when the tipping point is or what it looks like. But those are questions we shouldn't want to find the answer to. Budget deficits, as far as the eye can see up to this point, And we'll see whether or not there's any will to address that by either the Republicans or the Democrats, rhetoric aside, moving forward. Well, California's biggest utility, PG&E, could be moving toward a deal with insurers that could end its bankruptcy nightmare. While they failed to adequately impact, uh, rather inspect and maintain its uh, transmission lines for years before a facility Um, caused the deadliest fire in California history. It was a faulty line, according to a state investigation. And a 700-page report detailing the problems that led to the Caribou-Palermo transmission line to malfunction November 8, 2018, sparking the campfire. Investigators with the California Public Utilities Commission said they found systematic problems with how the company oversaw safety of its oldest lines. 
Well, state fire investigators had previously determined that PG&E equipment started the campfire, which killed 85 people, and the company hasn't disputed the findings. But the new report goes well beyond earlier findings, alleging numerous serious violations of state rules for maintaining electric lines and specific problems with un- um, upkeep of the transmission line that started that particular fire and is suspected in others since. The investigation's conclusions corroborate many of the findings of previous Wall Street Journal articles, which found that PG&E deferred maintenance work on the Caribou-Palermo transmission line, along with numerous other older transmission lines, The identified shortcomings in PG&E's inspection and maintenance of the incident tower were not isolated, but rather indicative of an overall pattern of inadequate inspection and maintenance of PG&E's transmission facilities. The report by the Commission's Safety and Enforcement Division found. Investigators also found the PG&E crews hadn't climbed the tower that uh, malfunctioned and sparked the campfire since at least 2001, a violation of company policy requiring such inspections on towers Uh, that have recurring problems. They concluded that a climbing inspection of the tower during that time could have identified the worn sea hook before it failed and that its uh, timely replacement could have prevented ignition of the camp fire. Well, again, the biggest utility, PG&E, could be moving toward a deal with insurers that could end its bankruptcy nightmare. That's only one facet of the nightmare that they are facing moving forward. Again, confirming that they are, in fact, responsible for the incident that sparked the camp fire. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, amount of time the average person spends over a lifetime watching television. And also there's a brouhaha over whether or not a biblical verse can appear on the dog tags of military when they request them. That when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a new survey out that says the average person will watch more than 78,000 hours of television. That's about 3.5 hours of television every day on average. Six in 10 adults admit that they would be lost without their TV set, while others have just simply gotten rid of them altogether. Well, television has become such a common part of our lives that most don't even think about how much time they actually spend staring at the television screen. Of course, all of those hours are undoubtedly adding up, and a recent survey of 2,000 British adults finds that the average TV viewer will watch an astounding 78,705 hours of programming. That's movies, sports, news, etc. in their lifetime. Now, that's a whole lot of screen time that may be better spent on more productive endeavors. And yet, we watch television. On a day-to-day basis, the average adult watches television for three and a half hours, amounting to about 1,248 hours every year. The survey was commissioned by LG Electronics. It broke down those numbers even further and concluded that the average adult these days will watch 3,639 movies at home, 31,507 episodes of television during their lifespan. As far as different programs, the average person will watch 11,278 different TV series as well. Additionally, it seems that deciding what to watch is a very common problem among modern families. The average household will have two arguments every week simply over what to watch. Now, that may not hold up these days because there are all kinds of screens upon which one can watch whatever one chooses. You can be in the same room and have several different things going on at once. Sadly, more than half of the survey's participants say that their households would struggle to get by with only one television for everyone. 
And again, lots of other screens as well. That's probably why, according to the research, the average home hosts at least two television sets, which are usually thrown out in favor of newer models every six years. Now, when it comes to watching television, modern audiences have made it clear that quality matters. A full quarter of respondents say that their viewing experience can easily be ruined by an outdated television, which is why they usually go out to friends' homes or other places to watch big events on big screens on better televisions. Um, Here's an especially noteworthy statistic. Six in ten respondents actually admit they would be lost without their television set. Now, would you say that you would be lost without your television set? Figuratively speaking, of course, on today's Christian radio. Uh, So besides screen quality, what else annoys people most about watching television? Well, sound quality and uh, glares on the screen were the most frequently uh, listed annoyances by respondents. Other common annoyances, including other people uh, talking while a show is on and others asking annoying questions while a program is on. Between traditional cable, smart television apps, uh, streaming services, viewers today have never had more choices of what to watch, which perhaps tethers them to the screen uh, more faithfully. Interestingly, the the survey actually found that many people, about 15 percent, tend to get frustrated by having too many options. How many channels are there available and how many things would you actually be interested in watching at any given time? On that note, the average adult will spend about 2,943 hours of their life just deciding what to watch. And then, of course, watching it. Hmm. Well, when Army Captain Russell Ripito was killed in action in April of 2003, the first combat casualty of Operation Iraqi Freedom, then-President George W. Bush spoke about how Repito had on his dog tags Joshua 1-9 engraved on it. Well, for the past 20 years, military members have been able to wear dog tags with Bible verses on them. I mean, this is what identifies them in the event that they do not return to their homes upright. It gives them um, light and hope in some of their darkest times. For some gold star families, this is one of the most cherished possessions to remember their loved ones who gave the ultimate sacrifice. But all this could be coming To an end. It's been reported in July uh, on Shields and Strength, a program on Fox News, the faith based business that prints Bible verses on dog tags for military members and their families. Uh, Complaints were raised by the Department of Defense by Mikey Weinstein, the founder and president of Military Religious Freedom Foundation. He demanded the military branches stop allowing the group to use military emblem. Well, soon after, every military branch then pulled or threatened to pull the the, uh, trademark license. That had been issued to Kenny Vaughn from Shields of Strength. Now, the Army emailed him with the subject line negative press, suggesting they were motivated by uh, this uh, particular press release. You are not authorized to put biblical verses on your Army products. Army Trademark Licensing Program Director Paul Jensen wrote to Vaughn in August, according to a letter that's now been obtained. For example, Joshua 1.9, please remove all biblical references from all your Army products. Now, these are personal items worn by an individual in uh, combat in harm's way and may be the only token uh, that a family has left of that individual. Well, First Liberty Institute, on behalf of Vaughn, sent a demand letter to the Army on Tuesday calling on the breach, uh, rather the branch, to reinstate the trademark license for the faith-based initiative. Your directive that SOS remove all biblical references from its Army licensed products is unconstitutional and violates RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Mike Berry, who's chief of staff and director of military affairs for Liberty for First Liberty, wrote in a letter 
to Mr. Jensen. It's insane. It's incredibly selfish. All we do is provide a reminder of God's word. No one has to do this, Vaughn said, a world-class skier who has produced more than four million dog tags with scriptures on them on the request of individuals. His organization has uh, donated hundreds of thousands to uh, Department of Defense units and individual service members. Virtually every unit that's contacted us and said, would you make us a tag with our unit on it? We've seen the fruit of the mission, literally thousands of soldiers, airmen, Marines, telling us with tears in their eyes how much it meant to them and uh, many times that God uh, gold star families to be in possession of the dog tag they wore. He added, I don't understand it will bury a Marine Corps combat veteran who served in Afghanistan blasted Weinstein for the move. Just when I didn't think Mike Weinstein uh, could stoop any lower, he pulled a stunt like this. Well, he'd rather take it away from them just to raise his own publicity than support our service members. That's pretty cowardly, and that's cruel, he says. Well, Vaughn uh, started making the dog tags after a friend put a scripture verse on his skis, and he said it gave him courage and strength. He said that uh, he thought it would uh, have helped him um, that much as an, if it helped him that much as an athlete, then how much would it help a soldier on the battlefield? He's seen soldiers who have to leave their Bibles behind, carry it with them through the shields and strength. And oftentimes the soldiers would stand in line for hours just to get one. It, uh, it's making a difference in the lives of the people who are fighting for us. It's not just about us. It's about them, Vaughn concluded. The most valuable thing I have to offer is God's word. I've seen it change lives forever, and there's nobody I want to help more than our United States military because they stand in the gap for us. Well, the Army and uh, MRFF uh, did not respond have not yet responded to this challenge, but we'll continue to follow that story and hope it uh, it gains traction and this capacity is restored. Well, coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with uh, Anthony Segrist. He's the author of Speaking of God, An Essential Guide to Christian Thought. We'll also talk with Gary Hemingway, who is the music director of the Portland Symphony Gospel Christmas concert that's coming to the uh, Portland area on the 12th, 13th, and 14th. That's uh, coming right up. We'll also continue giving away Gospel Christmas tickets uh, through the remainder of this week. On Thursday, we'll talk with Mark Stewart, Losing My Voice to Find It, How a Rock Star Discovered His Greatest Purpose. And uh, on Friday, we'll lighten things up. want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.